This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. What a day it is for the law. What a day it is for the law and understanding why America is so special and so spectacular and worrying about what the left is going to do. So we'll get to all that. First of all, let me say we're getting towards the uh, 4th of July weekend. I want to encourage you again to visit a website, RaiseTheFlagSayThePledge.com. RaiseTheFlagSayThePledge.com. It's an effort by General Michael Flynn to encourage people to say the Pledge of Allegiance and to also uh, raise the flag. So you get a flag, uh, you can go kick through to a wonderful service, an a, a organization set up by a man named Paul Hoffaker to get people help people to get a flag, get it mounted on their home or get a flagpole or whatever, replace a flag. Sometimes people buy a flag for someone else and go ahead and get that set up for the 4th of July and then say the pledge. And lots of people are saying the pledge and recording it on the video and then putting it up on the internet. So you can do all that. I encourage you to do it. <clears throat> Raise the flag, say the pledge.com. I myself will be looking forward to 4th of July. I'll fill you in next week on where I will be on the 4th of July. It will be spectacular. All right, let's get to what makes America so special. Our founding values, we often talk about it. You say the pledge of allegiance, and there's lots of things captured in there. Uh, and, um, but our founding documents, underlying our founding documents, as I mentioned, the founding beliefs, but the founding documents really set up a framework of the rule of law. So if you don't have the Judeo-Christian tradition that says, hey, we're going to have morality and ethics that bind us together, when I give you my word, I'm bound by my word. When I enter into a contract, I'm bound by it. When I enter into a relationship to society, I'm willing to abide by the rules, the laws. That's central. And over the last few days, we've seen a number of examples of our system, our written constitution and the rule of law holding up pretty darn well. So let me first point to the Arizona cases that went before the U.S. Supreme Court and which the by a six to three majority, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that, of course, of course, states can regulate the election as they see fit. And states can limit the implementation of policies that have to do with um, uh, uh, going forward to having elections. So you can limit drop boxes and make sure that there's signature verification. And the left wanted to say anything at all that gets in the way of any type of uh, turnout, whether it's fraudulent or even suspected fraudulent, you can't be, that's an imposition. It's, it's too much of a burden. And the Supreme Court said, no, look, We've got this system of governing together, and we do have laws that protect and the Constitution that protects aspects of our community. So you can't be bigoted or racist. You can't be uh, aiming at one group or another. But you can do basic common sense uh, regulations that protect the integrity of the election. That's what Arizona did. And the Supreme Court said, of course you can do it. So that's good. That's good. That shows the system's working. Now, I did see some commentators pointing out, um, I wish that the uh, Supreme Court and other courts had taken up some more of these cases that, are, uh, that were pending after November 3rd. That's a different question. But for now, let's just say that part of this system worked. Okay? Now, another aspect of the rule of law and what happened in the last couple of days is the Bill Cosby case. Now, let's put aside whether Bill Cosby did terrible, terrible things. Let's put aside whether Bill Cosby did terrible, terrible things. Let's concede that he did terrible, terrible things. 
he did some bad things, I think. I mean, I guess even in some of the civil suits, he admitted that. But the fact is that he entered into an agreement with the civil case with the people that were involved in uh, suing him over some of his misbehavior. And when he did so, he checked first with the prosecutor and he made sure with the prosecutor that if I do go forward with this, that I won't be prosecuted. The prosecutor said, no, you won't be prosecuted. And then later, a new prosecutor, by the way, new elected prosecutor went after him. Now, the point here is not to defend Bill Cosby if he acted icky. And I think it looks like he did. He may have admitted acting icky, at least acting... Uh, immorally. But it's to say that you got to have a system. You got to have a system that allows the rule of law and allows the citizens to rely, especially when it comes to losing their liberty. See, I wouldn't care if, uh, I, I really wouldn't, I don't think the law would care, if people sued Bill Cosby after, let's say he did an interview at late in his life, you know, now he's in his 80s, and he did an interview where he admitted being icky. Well, people could come along and sue him for that, and he can't say, well, you know, I, I didn't want to have to be held accountable, I thought too much time passed, or I thought I was off the hook. Well, I don't mind when it comes to money. Take all his money. People can sue him and take his money. When it comes to people's liberty, we are more careful, and for a good reason. You don't want to have a system where the lawyers and the people with power, the prosecutors, are playing fast and loose with the loose, fast and loose with the rules. It leads us to a dangerous place, which brings us to another point. And this is where we're starting to get down a path and wondering, wait, are we messing around with what I call lawfare and with problems with our systems? So the first example is the uh, district attorney of New York has charged Donald Trump's, uh, the Trump Organization's CFO and the Trump Organization with, I don't know, 10 or 15 counts of something that sounds like accounting mistakes or even accounting uh, omissions. It's all kinds of things that have to do with taxing benefits and taxing fringe benefits. And let me point out, if the Trump organization gave, say, a million dollar uh, apartment to one of its employees and the employee didn't report it on his taxes, the rep I said this yesterday, the employee has a problem, but the Trump administration is actually doing something good for the employee and actually to the detriment of the, co of the company because the company should be able to take a deduction for what they did as a business expense, not a deduction, excuse me, should, should book it as business expenses if they're paying something out. So it's actually one of these things where you say the corporation's being dumb and the individual, maybe they're being greedy, but you have to kind of wonder if, uh, well, is this really, is this, is this after years and years, is this what you get when you say you're going to do good work? Or is this what you get where you're being political? And even the coverage of the matter made it so that they were admitting that this is meant to squeeze the man who's been charged, uh, Weaselman or Weiselman. And so, I mean, I, I start, you start to say we've got now the attorney general of, of New York who ran for office saying she was going to get rid of Trump. And she ran for office saying she was going to get the NRA. She's getting the NRA. She so far doesn't have anything on Trump. But the district attorney of New York is doing that. It feels like targeting citizens and it feels like it's meant to scare off citizens. And what it really feels like is like what Lois Lerner did at the IRS under Obama and what you can expect to see more and more, which is targeting people who are not acceptable to the administration and making their lives miserable and scaring the bejesus out of them. And here's the here's the trick. Remember, remember the hovel trick, H-A-V-E-L, the hovel maneuver I 
call it. Havel described how people will start to realize that the best thing you can do is self-censor, in this case, self-moderate, and go ahead and go up to power and make sure you're not opposite power. Because if you're telling me that there's not CEOs in businesses across this land who have had fringe benefits that aren't taxed appropriately, I know you're going to be lying. And so there you have it. And now, by the way, one more. I'll drop one footnote here. Think about what's going on with the, and last night, Tucker Carlson on his show, I guess it was on Wednesday night, he covered it in great detail, the non-denial denial of the ab- in, uh, insane NSA, in which the NSA admitted that, well, we didn't. We, if you thought there was a plan to look at electronic records and get uh, Tucker off the air, well, we didn't do that. They never denied that they actually were listening in. So, look, we're headed into a time, in the last couple days, you can see how the system is working, and you can see how the system's being abused. Now, there will always be abuses, right? There have always been abuses. The question is, as I've said over and over again, can we, the people, count on the system to, to moderate and, uh, and eliminate the abuses? And my fear right now is that you're watching the narrative machine, as I call it so often, which is the big tech and big media and big government working together to make a third. Look, how many people in this country are going to believe after the coverage of CNN breathlessly for years, three years? And then now there's a law. Now there is a criminal charges against the Trump administration and one of their members for things that sound awfully like doing business. It's they brought him in in cuffs. I mean, come on. This is like Elliot Spitzer back in the day playing games with people. We got to be careful that we're not losing the country when we see good things happening, the courts and and, and the system working, and then we see the abuses. We got to know the difference. All right, we'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest, I've been looking forward to it for a few weeks. Um, I, you, My listeners know that I love books, uh, Jim, and so I, I got your book, and I love getting books, especially from uh, Republic Book Publishers. My friend Al Regnery runs that with Erica Kamen, and they do a great job. And uh, So I got this book, and I did my trick. Uh, I'm talking, we're talking with Jim Hansen, the author. My trick is read the first and last chapter, and then see if I want to read more. And your book made me want to read more, so there we are. So I'm about 90% through it. And Jim Hansen is a former U.S. Army Special Forces uh, member, a military man who then became an executive, uh, ran multi-million dollar businesses in the tech sector, and has also uh, now worked to heads up America Matters, and wrote a book called The Myth of White Fragility, which is really good too. And this one is called Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot by Jim Hansen. Welcome, sir. How are you? Pleasure to be with you. Glad to, to talk about this important stuff. Yeah, so the beginning of your book, because I tracked in on it, and I thought, huh, you know, most authors are writing three months in advance, and so you, in the prologue, you are talking about January 6th. I mean, you were writing before that, obviously, but you you experienced January, so you write about the experience of January 6th, and I guess um, the Second Civil War, I mean, you know, I just did a commentary earlier in the show, and I said, you couldn't, I don't know, you couldn't design a modern gulag that looks like what they're doing to the men and women sitting in D.C. prisons for 
for trespass, maybe vandalism. And you have federal prosecutors, retired federal prosecutors bragging about how, you know, they deserve what they got because they were there at this political event. I, I mean, am I overdoing it, Jim? When you talk about a civil war, aren't they targeting people based on their political views and making it clear? You know, they did it to Flynn. That was that was lawfare of the first order. But at least he was a prominent person. Now they're doing it to regular folks uh, who happen to be in the D, uh, in D.C. on January 6th. Oh, no, you are absolutely correct that this is one of the most grotesque abuses of state power um, I've ever seen. And I'm including some of the stuff done by the Soviet Union. Yeah, they haven't gone to actual gulags yet. Um, but I think at this point, you know, they, they would love to, to get there. They are basically deciding right now. And the Biden administration just released their new strategy on domestic terrorism, which actually codifies this plan. They are going to use all the organs of state power to try and criminalize conservatism and punish conservatives. And we either fight back now or we end up eventually in a gulag. You earlier we're talking with Jim Hansen again. His book is uh, from Republic Book Publishers, and it's and the title is "Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot." Chapter four, uh, Jim, was the combatants, and you're going through the combatants. You're basically describing, you know, who the players are. You got Antifa on the field. You got Black Lives Matter. You describe the left. Um, you know the the uh, NFAC, which is Black Nationalist Groups. You got the right, the Proud Boys, uh, Boogaloo Boys, and here's my neo Nazis, militia groups. You go through all this. Even QAnon's listed there. You're describing all the combatants. But I guess I want to say, you know, yes, those are sort of the obvious people on the ground. Um, but, you know, the power of big tech in the first chapter of your book, or maybe it was the prologue, you described how, you know, just instantly Twitter takes Flynn, Trump, uh, Powell, a few others off the playing field for basically what the left suggested. And, and they all backed up was the, you know, this great insurrection. And so isn't kind of the biggest combatant in this, the uh, big tech and the, maybe the second biggest big media? I think you're spot on right there. And one of the things that scared me the most in the new Biden counterterrorism plan was they actually outright mentioned partnering with the tech tyrants right. to shut right. down misinformation, disinformation and speech they dislike. So they're legitimately subcontracting out censorship and violations of the First Amendment because they can't do it themselves. And the, the tech guys were so good at it throughout the election that they, they basically shut down any story that damaged Biden and pushed every story in the world they could use to hurt Trump. So I, I agree with you 100 percent that they are one of the first battlegrounds, because if we can't talk about it, we can't tell everybody what they need to do. Yeah, well, in the, in the book, again, the Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot, Jim Hansen and it's, uh, Republic Book Publishers. Later in the book, uh, I always look for this. I was, uh, well, in a few moments, I'll talk with David Horowitz, who does this so well, and the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked. She used to write the books. She would say in the first, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine chapters, she'd describe everything that was wrong, and then she would turn to, what are we going to do about it? And you talk about the counterattack uh, late in the book. Um, Jim, I, I get, you know, Second Amendment, 
it's a stabilizing thing, right? You know, it's actually the best protection for peace. And you go into the Heller case and all. I see it. Um, you come out of tech, though. And you, so you talk about we need to do, have we have to find our own communication paths. One of them you said was Hollywood. But also, I'm sure you agree it's tech. But, you know, when we try to do tech, Parler gets shut down by the infrastructure. Um, you know, uh, guys like Mike Lindell, who I love, he says he's going to have a new free speech platform. There's nothing there yet. Uh, Donald Trump says he might have one. There's nothing there yet. You know, it's kind of like, um, could you could you compete with Standard Oil in 1915 or 1908 or whatever year it would be? Because you'd say, well, we could have more competition, but you can't get into the game. And so when it comes to tech, uh, what you know, you came out of the field. What 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 could we envision? I think we have to keep trying. I, I agree with you. They have done a tremendous job at countering our counterattacks in that arena uh, because they still have the power. What we need to do is the next time we get into power, we need to crush those tech monopolies. There is nothing in the world that says we have to allow a monopoly that is biased and being used to shut down free speech to exist in this country. You can't have someone kicked off of their wireless network because you don't like what they're saying. You can't deny someone electricity because you don't like their political views. But you can stop them from engaging in what is our public information space, the social media. And that right now is an unacceptable situation. So we're going to have to work. There's a great lawsuit just filed in California by Harmeet Dillon, um, who is a, a yep. assassin yep. in this arena. And I think that's yeah. going to get some discovery against Twitter. But we need to fight those people and, and beat them. And then that will open up competition for our own uh, distribution channels. Uh, we're talking again with Jim Hansen, uh, former spe special forces operator, also a businessman and uh, now the author of a couple books. This one is Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot and Republic Book Publishers. I love those guys. I love what they're doing, the books they're publishing. Some of my uh, my listeners, they keep hearing me talk about Old Abe, one of my favorite books published by those guys in the last year or so. Um, Jim, earlier in the book now, I'm back looking at my notes, you talked about this, the Cold War and you know, one overlay of this situation is we actually do have, uh, I mean, an existential threat uh, outside of our borders in the form of the communist Chinese regime. And so part of me says every day when I wake up and watch the junk that's uh, that's pushing to the top of the social media froth and uh, showing up in stories in The New York Times and Politico is uh, the Chinese regime is much richer and much more powerful than the Soviets ever were. And they're not sitting around going, huh, I hope we can just build a Belt and Road Initiative and outspend these guys. They're infiltrating the country. They're influencing social media. It's not just TikTok, and it's not our data that they take. It's the persuasion of our people to make us grab at each other's throats over stupid stuff, and, and then they send us fentanyl, and then they steal our intellectual property, and then they're going to Mars faster than we are. And if they control space before we do, forget about it. It's going to be them in charge. And and yet, you know, we, we have sort of so many things in front of us, as you pointed out, threats and, 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 and domestic worries. But China is a real problem. It's not a minor problem. And they're lapped up. They're roped into each other, aren't they? They, they have to be taken as parallel. I, I took a look about two years ago and decided that the domestic threats outweighed the external threats as far as what was most likely to potentially destroy the republic. China is a bigger threat, but it's less likely to actually destroy the republic in the next couple of generations. 
the woke left is making a run at that. So I'm legitimately mm-hmm. moving out of national security into domestic policy for that very reason. Hmm. That doesn't mean we can afford to avoid looking at our external enemies. But we have to go ahead and say, if, if we get undermined from within, then the Chinese can walk in. And it's not like, you know, a bunch of arugula chomping, soy latte drinking pajama boys and girls are going to stop them. So we need to take control of our country again in order to actually be able to oppose them. Well, again, make it clear, excuse me, we're talking to Jim Hansen. His book is Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot. By the way, uh, you know, you talk about operators. Uh, uh, you said you're moving from national security to focus on domestic because you see domestic problems. Think about this. The move from national security to domestic policy, that's what Susan Rice did. I mean, Susan Rice went from sitting at the center of giving away America, you know, giving away to Iran lots of money and lots of power and then joining all these stupid things. Now she's in the domestic policy in the White House running things, doing all this stuff. I mean, you know, when the history's written, if, if, if it's not written by man, someday I hope to learn from God the, the truth of all this, because it is really, really diabolical what Susan Rice and her, her people are doing. She is, uh, she's good, is the, the really scary thing. And that's why I think for too long we <laughs> yeah. assumed that the Constitution and the rest would, would keep us safe. Um, we need to buttress that a little bit with our best people focused on the internal operations, organizations, and systems inside the United States for a bit and make sure that we don't let those fall to the woke left. Yep. Well, this is a good start. Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot. Jim Hansen, Republic Book Publishers, is publishing it. Thank you very much, sir, for your time. Good to be with you, Ed. All right, we'll take a break, everybody. I'll put it up on social media. My uh, uh, some of this 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 interview and some other links, and also you can find it anywhere books are sold. Again, uh, winning the civil, winning the second civil war without firing a shot. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Pedro Gonzalez. If you go uh, and watch Pedro on Twitter uh, or where he writes, he's very, very smart. He's very interesting. He has a perspective that keeps getting me thinking. And so I, I emailed him and I said, hey, you want to come on the show? Now, importantly, he also is uh, an editor at Chronicles. And if you don't know enough about Chronicles, it's a it's an important magazine. Chronicles, it's a magazine of American culture. And it's one thing to say it's a conservative magazine. That's kind of true, but it's also, um, I would say, uh, it's been around for many years and it's kind of, it's got a vision that's, uh, it's not just conservative. It's really about our culture, as it says, and about what's happening. Started in 1977, by the way. And, uh, so welcome Pedro to the program. How are you? Oh, I'm well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on the program. Now, um, Pedro, uh, right now, when you write for Chronicles and you're writing about culture, it, it, it feels, and I've had this conversation with my listeners, that the culture, that a lot of conservatives just totally out of step with the culture. Is that because the media and tech tell us that and really the culture is sort of buzzing along fine or is, or are we really out of step? I mean, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you describe what's happening in this country? That's a good question. I think that there are increasingly there, there's actually two countries. And the one that people like us are uncomfortable with is the emergent and unfortunately right now I think ascendant one. 
It's the one that is, I think, trying to replace the America that we identify with. The, the, when we talk about the American way of life, when we talk about American culture and tradition, things like that, we're talking about things that these other people are, they view as either regressive or bigoted or outmoded. And so they're trying to replace that. And so I think it is true to say that there are two, two Americas and they're competing right now. And unfortunately, I think the, uh, just it's useful to, to still use terms like left and right. So I'll just use them. I think that the left is basically, if they haven't already won the culture war, they're definitely winning. And in no small part, this is because they don't really face a whole lot of opposition. I'm, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking about elected officials and intellectuals and pundits. I think everyday people have a good sense of what is right and what is wrong and, and where to put your foot down, right? But the problem is, is that their elected officials don't. Uh, they either don't have that sense or they don't care to have that sense or they actually despise the people that they're supposed to be representing. And conservative intellectuals, these, I mean, these people live in the same ivory towers as liberal intellectuals, so they also don't care really about what like everyday people have to say and think, right? Uh, for them, free trade is a great because it's consistent with the principles of the free market. For you, it means that your town is desolated because your job has been sent overseas. So this is a huge problem. And I think that problem lends itself into losing control of the country. Like we're, we're letting slip the country from our fingers because there is no real opposition to this stuff. And I'll give it back to you, uh, but I'll end on this. I think that Juneteenth was probably the, the perfect example of this, of the, the American left and mainstream right, Republicans and Democrats coming together to basically uh, pay homage to the, the, this ascendant new culture we're talking with Pedro Gonzalez. Pedro, as I, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, can you have a nation without a culture? In other words, when we say the culture is shifting, and and so let you know if we if we you know in a 10 minute interview we can't do justice to this, but let's say that the culture of America is something that is is it, it, let's summarize it. Let's just for the sake of the argument summarize it as Judeo Christian its origin, bound together by the rule of law and a certain kind of understanding of the way we live together. You know that and and I don't know maybe that's that's probably too little, but it feels like if you lose the culture. You're not really going to – you can have a constitution. If you don't have the culture around the constitution, it's not going to bind you together. You know, the, the, the communists, the Chinese the, the Chinese communists have documents that they, they look at and say, look at this. was what we're committed to. They don't live to it. They don't have a, they don't have a culture around that. The culture – communist culture is, is without uh, a commitment, without uh, ethics formally uh, or maybe that's, that's not fair. Morals for sure. So um, – are, are we losing the culture and not even realizing it? We're still fighting about the uh, about the uh, our reactions to it when it doesn't matter if you get to a point 10, 15, 20 years from now where you've lost the culture. You can't say, oh, but we've got a good constitution. Right. Yeah, that's right. The things like the constitution, any kind of documents like that, anything that's based on uh, ways of living, ways of living that – uh, exists within boundaries of uh, different, like like Anglo-Saxon law, common law, things like that. Uh, these things only matter for as long as the people that they're laid onto understand them and care about them and appreciate right. them. And, and when you lose those things, what good is the Constitution? It, it's just a dead letter at that point. I think we are getting to that when we, I think we actually are already at that point. 
Um, the question is, is what do we do about it? And it sounds like an obvious question, right? But not enough people are asking it. It's bizarre that we, we especially as cons- uh, people who are on the right, I'll say, middle Americans, we always hear about the culture war and, you know, taking back the country, but it, it seems like that's actually all we ever hear about. Uh, but the solutions are always unclear or they're half measures or they actually sound a whole lot like what the opposition is saying. Uh, so I think that this is a kind of fundamental problem that the conservative movement has is so we're recognizing that there is a problem. You know, something is wrong here. We're right. losing control of our country. Okay, so what do we do about it? It's like, well, let's look at the left, and we'll start using their tropes and their symbolism and their narratives. Exactly. And, right. And and then you re- quickly realize, like, oh, no, we're still losing control of the country. And, in fact, we're we're just kind of accommodating uh, that, that loss of control, and we're starting to sound like our enemies in the opposition. And, and, and ultimately you realize that for the last, like, 30 years or so, the last 30, 40 years, uh, we've been kind of just reconciling ourselves to losing control, or at least that is what our elected officials have been doing and what our smart people, uh, the thinking class, has been doing is, is kind of just telling us that uh, this is just how it's going to be. Right. For example, I live over and I live in northern Virginia and, then, you know, a few miles away in Loudoun County last night, there was this wild time at the uh, at the school board. And, and I'm all for it. I'm all for standing up and saying this transgenderism is crazy. Critical race theory is crazy. But, you know, the broader context is that the, the government run schools have maybe they weren't doing transgenderism two and a half years ago. Maybe they weren't doing critical race theory three and a half years ago. But starting about 25 years ago, they started to teach your kids not in ways that would be uh, how to say most um, most likely to lead to good well-formed uh, members of our community who appreciate what America is about and suddenly we're going to fight over critical race theory and say please stop doing that and then I think just like Common Core they'll stop doing that and they'll do everything else they've been right. doing which is still destructive to our kids it, it kind of it, it feels to me like um, we've trapped ourselves and the culture uh, excuse me that the, the um, tech community uh, the social media and, and internet that makes it so we get front of mind so fast. Okay, there we go. I'm going to fight this. And 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 I I wonder, you know, if you can sort of ever get out of this spiral. And and what could get us out of it? Maybe that's a question. We're talking. We're talking Pedro Gonzalez and Pedro's Twitter handle is at emeriticus emeriticus. Uh, just to keep us on our toes, search from Pedro L Gonzalez on Twitter. Um, but but Pedro is is the broader. Can you pull normal people? back to the bigger fight or do you have to just hope to steer people that are worried about the thing they're worried about and steer them in the direction that leads to better uh, possibilities and I, I'm sorry I'm filibustering but I was looking at your Twitter feed the pinned tweet you wrote about how we ruthlessly outsource the American dream and that most people don't realize they lived it they don't realize yeah. what we were doing to ourselves over a 25 yeah. year period so how do you pull mm. people in the right direction in a, in a de- democratic republic like we've got I think everyday people already have a sense of these things. In, in Loudoun, recently, I think in the last two days or so, there was a protest. People, parents were protesting uh, critical race theory and, and transgenderism being taught in schools. And there's a video that's making the rounds on Twitter. And you can see that these parents are violently angry. They're furious that their kids are being taught that they're bad because they're Americans in general and, and white Specifically, like it is. Inf- I mean, it's infuriating to me to think that the kids have to like to suffer through that, right? So, 
so I think that, that that's still a good sign. It means that Americans still have a pulse, which is a very good thing. <laughs> the, right. the problem is, is that it seems to me that the, the point of the political system, I always hammer Republicans because I'm on the right. So, you know, obviously, my, my, for me, my party is my biggest problem. Uh, but it seems to be the case that both political parties and Republicans especially specialize in taking people's anger, real legitimate anger and fear, and basically just turning it into a fundraising drive and then telling you to calm down because you have solved, you know, because you reelected them or because you donated to them and, and they won some ephemeral election, everything's fine now. And then they tell you, you know, calm down. Uh, everything's going to be okay, but obviously it's not. And but I think ultimately you realize that you're just kind of going through this cycle of outrage where yeah. the next thing happens, the next outrageous thing happens that people said wouldn't happen, and you get angry, and Republicans will fundraise on it, and nothing ever happens. So basically, I think people need to not uh, – it sounds almost kind of silly, but I think people need to hold on to that anger and that anxiety that they feel and demand that their party – becomes like an instrument because I think the, the, the issue well, is, is that go ahead. No. I, so here's my, here's one of my guys that I, I think back on um, and Huey Long, Huey Long's history. Yeah. If you look at it and there's a pretty good, there's a pretty good, um, there's a pretty good, um, what is it? Uh, PBS thing by uh, what's his name? The, uh, the guy that does all the documentaries. Uh, his name fails me, but you'll, you'll probably tell me. And, and it's an hour and a half or so on Huey Long and Huey Long got this populist wave and it was crazy, right? I mean, it was cr- by, by our, our, our standards. It was crazy. It was called share the wealth, but within like three months, yeah. maybe six months in a period of time where there was no, you know, ease of organizing. He had 3000 chapters organized of people that were focused on this thing. And here's what my point on this. And we're talking with Pedro Gonzalez, who writes over Chronicles, writes uh, as active on Twitter, very good voice on Twitter, writes at the American mind, other places you can find him, Pedro L. Gonzalez. But my point here is that the Republic conservatives tend to um, be less uh, likely to build sustaining political institutions. It feels like, or if they do, they get co-opted. I mean, we can make a list of yeah. the swamp, you know, think tanks that have been co-opted by a big budget and a need to keep all the fellows uh, supported. So, and the left, they say, come into our system and we will continue to give you a salary. This will be the way that you have a good life. It'll be a salary. It'll be a union job. It'll be a think tank job whatever it is. And they just kind of, they don't mind that. That's that kind of mindset. And that's attractive. If you're me, you say, why yeah. all these years have I slogged away and been, you too, probably been independent when if I'd gotten a government job when I was 24, by now I'd have a heck of a pension, right? My life would be a lot simpler in terms of worrying about stuff. So my point is, where, Pedro, in our history or, or in our recent history, could the, the, the leaders be that organize in a way that gives us a sustained, I don't know, call it populist conservative yeah. vision? And, and so the Tea Party didn't work, right? We did Tea Party for about 18 months and then it disappeared. Right. Well, I think the, the, so the first part is, is harnessing that anger and that outrage that everyday people have and actually finding a way to channel it into something constructive instead of something silly like the GOP fundraising drives. I think Huey Long is actually a great example. Huey Long is someone who tapped into that, who recognized and tapped into that anxiety that people feel. And, and in a lot of ways, it's what Donald Trump did. But it's also what Bernie Sanders right. did, by the way. There's a lot of similarities. Yes, exactly. Between, yep, that's uh, right. Bernie and Trump. And so, but the issue was, is that when, for example, Trump became president, he, it seems like he didn't know what he was getting into. And like you said, he was kind of assimilated and co-opted by the establishment. Very quickly, he started taking his cues from like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell 
and these just terrible advisors. And I think basically this is a long game, and we need to actually start laying the the institutional and theoretical groundwork now, which really just means uh, like coming up with an identity. Who who are we? And when we talk about American culture, what are we talking about? What what kind of country do we want to have? And I think that that is what was missing uh, for Trump in 2016 and then throughout his administration was there wasn't any real coherent doctrine. Uh, Trump went from running as a, as a, a guy who was going to, in many ways, his platform reminded me of, of Huey Long's platform, the big infrastructure plan and all this stuff, to basically tax cuts and kind of elevating things like criminal justice reform. Trump did not run right. on tax cuts and criminal justice reform, but that, those ended up being like the staples of his administration. So I think that this is something that's not going to happen. The problem that we're discussing is not going to be fixed in four to eight years. This is something that we have to start doing now, and I think we have to to find these find or build these alternative institutions, whether they're they're organizational chapters. <laughs> or mm-hmm. networks, things like that. Even even new uh, actual think tanks to do some actual thinking and right. uh, talk about these issues that are affecting people's lives, like like outsource, like job outsourcing. We we it sounds you know kind of uh, anodyne and harmless, but it's but it's true. We don't we don't actually have these things. You look at the, like the leading conservative think tanks today, the ones that are giving the GOP their ideas. Who is it? It's Heritage, the American Enterprise Institute. And like the Cato Institute, these organizations are terrible. They've had a hand in some of the worst policy decisions uh, that, that the Republican Party has made. And uh, but people still give them money and still listen to them and say like, well, you know, if Heritage or AEI or Cato says it, then it, it's, it's got to be a good idea. So I think we, we have a lot of basically uh, elbow work to do. It's not going to be easy, uh, and it's not going to it's not going to be it's not going to happen in the next four years. I think uh, it's definitely a long game. But we have to do it so that if we ever have a chance to have our Huey Long or have our Donald Trump 2.0 or something like that, this time we're actually ready. And there's a, there's an organizational yeah. groundwork that's been laid. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it is daunting. All right, Pedro Gonzalez, always interesting. And more, I knew it would be interesting to talk to you, and I'm interesting to read you and follow it. I'll put up on social media. I hope you are uh, ever succeeding in your writing and your uh, communicating because it's very valuable. So thanks for the time. Oh, thank you so much. All right, we'll take a break, everybody, and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us tonight. I just got a few minutes because I spent so much time speaking with uh, Pedro Gonzalez and covering some other ground with John Schlafly. So um, here's a story. Here's a story that's worth noting. Um even the White House and uh, and this president has been stuck uh, having to deal with and having to answer about the violence in our cities. You know, there's all this other stuff. There's all these conversations uh, about uh, critical race theory and the border. All these things are important. Meanwhile, uh, not meanwhile, but at the same time, you know, not to say meanwhile, there's uh, violence in our cities like you've never seen. I mean, never seen. Chicago, eight people shot, five killed at 6 a.m. last week. And by 7.30 a.m., the White House was on the phone to the mayor of Chicago talking about it. Mass shootings, other places. By the way, all in cities. You know who runs cities? I've been saying this for a while now. You're probably making everybody mad. You know who runs cities? Generally, our cities are run by liberal white Democrats 
who are racist because they're letting black kids get killed and black men get killed and black women get killed. They're letting all black kids go to bad schools. These are liberal white Democrat racists. That's who they are. In fact, they don't forget the liberal part. They're white Democrats. They're racists. They're running our cities. Well, Biden is there. Now there's coverage, even from somebody like Politico. And they're saying, oh, we, we, we got a problem. We, we got a big problem. What are we going to do here? And now here's the trick. <coughs> Pardon me. We got two problems. There is killing and we should worry about it. But now we have to worry about what's the federal government going to do about it. And here's it's staggering was the quote. It's sobering. Another quote from Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. Remember how I told you at the White House, Joe Biden is the figurehead. The place is being run by Susan Rice, a longtime Obama liberal. Over the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland is the Joe Biden of the Department of Justice. He's the attorney general in name only, and who's running it is the number two, Lisa Monaco, another avowed Obama leftist, you know, uh, operative. And so she's the one saying it's staggering. It's sobering. It's something the DOJ is committed to do all we can do to reverse. Here we go. Here we go. Watch. Watch what's coming in terms of the solution to the great problem. That, that's what you could be nervous about because it is a problem. And the, you know, the white Democrats in our cities have put us in this position where we're seeing death and seeing bad schools and all the rest. But now Biden administration is going to solve it. Who, what's that going to be? Gun control? Probably. What's it going to be? Uh, you know, uh, it's not going to be cracking down on gangs. Otherwise they would have done that. It's not going to be cracking down on Antifa. They would have done that. It's going to be gun control or something related to gun control. Watch. Watch them use a crisis to their advantage. It's what they do. It's what they do. You can expect it coming. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'll put that up on social media. And uh, I want to say thank you, as always, to Noah, our producer, for keeping everything going. And uh, also to Joanna for booking our guests. And we will be back uh, tomorrow, as always. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com to find out more. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.